Jim. Thank you. Good morning. It's really fun for me to, to be here. It's been a while since I've done this. Um, I, brought, I brought three things uh, here in my bag. I've got, first of all, I've got a, a, a puzzle. I'll set that right here. And then I've got, uh, sadly, this is my favorite watch. Maybe the only watch I've ever had, but it's broken. So I've got a broken watch, if you can see that. And then I've got, uh, kind of interestingly, I've got a sample of the coronavirus uh, here uh, from the clinic. I probably, here, probably shouldn't take it out like that, but you can see it just a little bit better here. I would, I would guess that depending on your personalities, you're probably thinking, man, I'd love to put that puzzle together. That would be really exciting. Or uh, I, I, a broken watch, let me add it. Who am I kidding? You guys are all thinking about the, the virus, aren't you? This is not the virus, obviously. Uh, I would get in really big trouble. This is ketchup. Uh, so, uh, but my point is, or my question is, uh, what, do, what do these three things have in common? They're all problems to be solved. Uh, they're all, they're all kind of mysteries that as you look at it, you're thinking, hey, that's, that's something that has to be figured out. That puzzle has to be put together. Uh, that watch, if it's going to be of any use, we've got we to gotta break it down, figure out what's broken, put it back together, got to fix that thing. And then with the virus or any virus or any medical issue, uh, broken bone or anything, our tendency is, man, we've got to figure that out so we can fix it, so we can prevent uh, something like that from happening again. So we kind of take this view of of knowledge that, hey, it's it's worth knowing these things because of what we can do with it. Back in the 17th century, there was a philosopher, Francis Bacon, who said he's the one that uh, coined that phrase, knowledge is power. And what that means, like when, when he said that, what he was referring to is the idea that the knowledge or the understanding about something that allows us to break it down, understand it, measure it, be able to predict its outcomes, and ultimately get to a place where we can control it. Uh, we can say, hey, we know this thing, we can control it. He was saying that that knowledge is power. So it was, it was not knowledge for knowledge's sake or truth for truth's sake. It was, it was the knowledge that allows us to be able to kind of figure something out so we can control it and we can predict it and we can put it in a box and say, we got that. We understand that. Um, this was really the bedrock thinking of the Enlightenment. Uh, and then it kind of grew into modernity and it is very, very much where we are today. Uh, as, as people, uh, really with the Enlightenment, this idea that the most valuable knowledge that you can give yourself to, like the most valid knowledge, I would even say at times we, we talk in terms of the only knowledge that really deserves a seat at the table, whether that would be in politics or in the classroom or in discussions of ethics or morality, uh, we are largely a people today that would say the only knowledge that is 
really valid is the kind of knowledge that can be tested and proved and then controlled. It allows us to control things. And one of the ways to describe what began to happen in the Enlightenment and is very much a part of our culture today is that the idea of mystery, that there's something out there that, that we don't understand yet, that became a real problem. Mystery became a problem. If there's something we can't figure out and we can't control it, we can't predict it, it signals to us that, hey, uh, our job's not done. Uh, it's incomplete. There's a problem there. Now, the reason, I, the reason I start this way this morning is because, um, you know, I know many of you pretty well, and I really do care a lot about you. And the most important thing, as I think about it for you, uh, is I just want you to feel, I just want you to know God really, really well. And I want you to have a life that is just full of, of enjoying him and walking with him, knowing him, growing in your knowledge of him. And because of that, uh, I just want to say one of, the, one of the hindrances to us knowing God can be at times this kind of instinct, this bias, uh, this leaning that we have largely because of the culture in which we live that that knowledge, the way we know things, is to break, break it down to its most essential parts, say, I got that, put it back together, and then say, hey, mystery's gone. And there, there are t tendencies that we have to do that exact thing with God. Now, I'm obviously a huge proponent of Christian education. Uh, our three kiddos, sorry, you're right... Our three kids uh, go to this school or went to this school, uh, love this school. Uh, I went, I, I really believed in Christian education for myself since I was going to be working with people. Uh, went to seminary, went on to get a doctorate. You know, I, I really do value Christian education. I want to say this, though, uh, that there is a way that having this gift of a Christian education can exacerbate this idea that the way we know God is to kind of break him down into his parts, say these are, you know, the, the characteristics of God, this is how God works, mystery solved. Just, just an ex as an example, let's say that you spent 10 years of your life studying watches. I mean, you were just surrounded by hundreds of people that were also studying watches and you had every possible watch in the world there and you spent all day just breaking these things down, figuring out what doesn't work, putting them back together. You just lived in the world of watches for, for 10 years. So that if I walked in and I said, guys, I got a broken watch, uh, your, your tendency might be to look at that watch and say, I got this. I know everything about that. What, what do you want me to tell you? Mystery solved. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but uh, there, were, there were quite a few times as I was studying theology and I was in seminary where I really did have that type of attitude toward God. I would say that was true even into my pastoral ministry. Uh, this is my 20th year in ministry. And there were definitely times when 
I would study things about God. And if there was something that I didn't know, if there was some issue that I couldn't really give a solid answer to, I, I really believed in my heart that signaled uh, a real problem that, that I didn't know God. So this idea that mystery is a problem, I would see, I'll, I'll, I'll just give you some of the issues that I struggled with. I struggled with, you know, the debate between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Man, I, I knew, I just had the sense that that mystery can be solved if I do the work. Or the mystery of the theanthropic man, the idea that Jesus is fully God and fully man, uh, I thought, man, if I can just, if I can study enough and I can read the right sources, I can crack that code, mystery solved. The, the issue of the, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that God exists as one God in triune persons. That, that was one. And then even as we're going to look here in a moment uh, in the book of Job, that surfaces a lot of issues too. The problem of evil. Uh, issues of God's sovereignty. But these were, these were things that, that I felt at times when I was studying theology. But what also happened for me, and this is very, I, I'm not proud of this, you guys, but what happened for me is I was learning a lot more than others. And so even though I, was, I felt this tension about I'm not solving some of these mysteries, I was feeling like I had God figured out. Kind of like with the watch, even as a pastor, if you'd come into my office and it wouldn't be a watch that's broken, maybe it was a, a life or a, a theological concept that was broken. There were times that I, I felt pride and I was like, what do you want to know? I, I've studied this. I can tell you. And, and so I, I did. I've, I've, I've struggled with this idea of of knowledge and of taking that toward God. When I look back on those times in my life, one of the things that it reminds me of, or one of the places in scripture that it reminds me of is the book of Job. Um, and I know that many of you, how many of you are reading this? I know quite a few of you are reading this, this book right now. Maybe not. I thought Mr. Zanger's class was going through it, but some, okay. Um, let me quickly recap kind of the storyline of Job. Uh, Job was a very special guy. He truly was. That's not just my opinion. The very first verse in the book of Job, God says about him, he was blameless and upright. He was one who feared God and turned away from evil. So in the world of, of mankind, he was special and God was blessing him. But then this is the fascinating part of that storyline. Satan, the accuser, approaches God on Job and says to God, it's all a, it's all a ruse. It's all a, a fake. Job is only being faithful to you because you're being good to him. Uh, it's the formula. You're, the formula is working. The reason that Job is continuing in the formula is that the formula is producing the right things. And again, God in that moment, in his sovereignty, chooses to allow Satan to attack Job. So God in his sovereignty allows Job to go through suffering and tremendous suffering. Uh, 
loss of his children, loss of livestock, loss of servants, loss of his health. Job goes through incredible suffering. Job's friends show up, and I, I have to think that a part of them was well-meaning, uh, but they show up, and this was obviously centuries before the Enlightenment. Job is one of the earliest books in the Bible. But there's, there's some of this knowledge is power thinking in Job's friend's counsel. This idea that, that God isn't necessarily that hard to figure out. There is, there's a formula to this. And Job, somehow you haven't played your part. There's some sin in your life that has broken the formula. Otherwise, God wouldn't allow this type of suffering into your life. Now, it's interesting to study the book of Job because Job didn't necessarily disagree with that basic tenet. Job disagreed with his friends on the idea that he had done something to deserve it. Job knew himself, and he knew his life, and he knew, his, he knew what God himself was saying about him. And Job maintained to his friends, I have not done. I don't know what it is. I, don't, I haven't done something to deserve what God has just put me through. And again, according to the storyline of Job, we're supposed to see he hadn't. He hadn't. It says in the very first chapter of Job, um, again, I, we looked at verse 1, but down in verse 8 it says, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth? a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job hadn't broken the formula. Now, this is, a, this is part of the lesson that we see Job go through with God. Job actually agrees with the basic idea that his friends are saying, that, that you, can, you can know God, we can talk about God, we can study God to get to this point where God is predictable. And Job, Job actually says to God, this, he, he questions God a few times. He says, like this is in chapter 13, verses 23 through 24. He says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? He says, make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? And really the heart or the, the question, the struggle that Job is asking here is, I've, I've broken this down. I've, I've found the broken parts. I've put them back together right. It's still not ticking. Like, I've, I've learned about you, God. I've loved you. I've, I've learned how this works with you. I've done the right thing, but I'm still suffering. That's, that's Job's complaint to God. Now, obviously, Job's friends were wrong. That Job hadn't sinned in a way or broken the formula. But, uh, but Job very much had that same, that same attitude. Now, let, turn with me, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Job 38, because I want to look at how the Lord responds to Job. And this is a gift, because one of the things that Job really wanted was God to show up, God to address him and, uh, but here's how, here's how God actually addresses Job. It's in the beginning of chapter 38. 
And it really stretches all the way through uh, the end of 41. But let me just read verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The point of what God is saying here, and I would encourage you this week to go read 38 through 41. These are three of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But the point of what God is saying here, this is rhetorical. He's asking Job question after question after question. But the point is, you cannot answer these questions. That when it comes to me, when it comes to, to the creator, when it comes to how I have created all things and by all, by, through me all things are held together, Job, there's absolutely no way you're going to understand me or my ways. Um, one of the ways we, we could rightly describe this moment is God shows up and speaks to Job and basically says, I am mystery. I am mystery to you. And I am a mystery to you that you can't solve. Now, the name of this doctrine, we, we call this, and you maybe have studied this, it's the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. Now, let me say something about this because we need to be really clear. This doctrine, this reality about God, in no way takes away from the fact that these scriptures are holy, that they are true, and that they are sufficient to teach us about God. And it also, this doctrine in no way takes away from the reality that we can know things about God. And we can grow in our knowledge of God. That, that as a gift, this mysterious God has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. And we can. there are truths and, and propositional claims in this book that we can take to the bank and we can base our lives upon. And, and it doesn't take away from that whatsoever. But what is true? And the lesson that Job is learning is that God, he lives and he moves and he has his being, right? God exists as an infinite. And we are creatures. So we live and we move and we have our being as finite creatures. And what that means is that there truly is not the ability in us as finite creatures to know everything that there is to know about God. When you think about, when you compare a finite thing to an infinite thing, we can study the scriptures and we can, we can be in 
classes together, and we could do that for 80, 90, 100 years of our lives. And by the time we get to the very end of our lives, you know how much we'll still have yet to know about God? An infinite amount. This is going to be one of the pleasures of heaven one day, is literally for all of eternity, we will be learning about God, and we will still have an infinite amount to go. So his ways as the creator are truly infinitely beyond us. And I think sometimes when we think about God in terms of he's a mystery to be solved and I can't rest until I solve him, but, but I've learned a lot, so I've kind of solved him. I think one of the ways that we can describe that is we've kind of forgotten about our creatureliness and our limitations and our capacity. And, and that's a dangerous thing. Um, so anyway, Job, Job receives this response from God that really stretches into three chapters. And the most appropriate way for Job to respond is to actually just exclaim with his soul, you are beyond me, God. You are, you are utterly beyond me. I was foolish to think that I could figure you out like a watch or like a virus. That's exactly how Job responds. If you uh, flip up a page to chapter 40, there's a couple places where Job responds to God. This is in chapter 40. And he says in verses 3 through 5, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Here's the fascinating part to me about this moment uh, between God and Job. When God shows up and basically through questions, through, through rhetoric, uh, shows Job that he is infinite, he is big, he is mysterious, Job actually, wouldn't you agree with me that Job grows in his knowledge of God the bigger the mystery of God gets? It, it, the picture of Job is for Job to rightly understand God and to love him, right? To be in awe of him and to worship him. The mystery of God has to get bigger. God in Job's mind has to break out of the formula. So it's, it's, it's very much the opposite way of viewing mystery than the thinking that began in the Enlightenment and still is very much a part of today that the only knowledge that counts is what we can study and prove and test and control. That view of knowledge, that testable knowledge is power, if we took that to the other, some of our other most important areas of life, would just absolutely ruin all the beauty of it. Um, give you a couple examples here as I close. Um, I don't know if you love the mountains of Colorado as much as I do, but that is like one of my favorite places to go. And usually to find a, a trout stream or a river. You can go to Colorado, and, and with this type of view of knowledge and of kind of investigative knowledge, you could go there, you could study the mountain ranges, you could visit everyone, check it off on a map, 
You could get to know all the names of the rivers. You could figure out their flow rates, what trout exist in which rivers. You could go there. You could catch them and check them off. You could walk away and say, I know Colorado. Uh, mystery solved. I can tell you where to fish. Or you can just keep going to Colorado. You can keep finding those trout streams. And you can learn about them, absolutely. Uh, you can do research. You can figure out some of your favorite fishing holes. You can, but you can go to Colorado and let the mystery and the bigness of Colorado get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. The same applies, I would suggest, to uh, if you get married one day. You guys, here I'm going to pick on the guys, but if you get married one day, I guarantee, you can write this down, this is one of the quickest ways that you can hurt the feelings of your wife one day, is to take this view of knowledge into that marriage and suggest to her sometime that, hey, I am in this to know you, I really do, I want to study you, I want to know you, so that I can predict you, so that I can somewhat control how you react to me and I can kind of get my way. I, I want to know you and study you so that at times I can fix you. Some of, some of you guys who are married, that's worked really well, hasn't it? Like, we've all done that. That's just a really hurtful idea for a wife or for a husband. The alternative is what we're talking about here. It, it's this idea that, that we could get married and we could say, I, I want to know you better. And again, we're not, we're not talking about mystery in terms of a lack of knowledge. Um, I've been married for 24 years. And do I know Jamie better today than I did 24 years ago? Absolutely. We can at times finish each other's sentences. We can oftentimes predict what the other would say or think. But what I can tell you after 24 years of marriage is that the mystery of who she is the realization of how different we are and how much more I have yet to learn about her, that is so much bigger today for me than it was 24 years ago. 24 years ago, after six months, I thought I had her figured out. But that's, that's the beauty, right? That's the beauty of whether it be a friendship or a marriage one day. It's the idea that we can grow in our knowledge and let the mystery get bigger and the fact that we see the mystery isn't evidence for us that we don't know the person. Seeing the mystery is evidence that we do know the person. I know the mysteries of Jamie better than anyone else in this room because, because I know her. And all I'm suggesting is this is a great way to approach your study of theology, your study of scripture, your times together in class, when you go on into college or life, um, when you learn about God, when you study him, the challenge I would have for you is simply make the, the terminal end of your study of, of God, make it worship, make it wonder, make it, make it awe, make it relationship, make it fascination. When you see in yourself what you will, you will see this. I have seen it in myself. I've battled this myself. When you see that desire to know God so that you can kind of put him into categories or you can give right answers about him to others, really fight that. That is a, that is a surefire way to kill the wonder and the joy 
and the fascination of, of knowing God. One of the, one of the people, and you've, I'm sure, read uh, quite a bit uh, by him, one of the people that has written quite a bit about this is C.S. Lewis, and, and he said this. He said, but who in his senses would not keep, if he could, that tireless curiosity, that intensity of imagination, that facility of suspending disbelief, that unspoiled appetite, that readiness to wonder. To have lost the taste for marvels and adventures is no more a matter for congratulation than losing our teeth, our hair, our palate, and finally our hopes. It makes me think of when Jesus said in Matthew 18, he, sa- he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. I think we're talking about that with this. He's not saying, boy, it's good to be ignorant. He's not saying it's good to be immature. What he is saying is it's, it's great to be like children, that when children see something that's bigger than themselves, when they see a mystery, they don't automatically think, i got to solve that so I can say I know it. They're, they're fascinated by it. They lean into it. It lights them up inside. And that's just my, my encouragement for you, is uh, getting to know God is book work. He gave us his word, and we have to study, but that doesn't mean that it can't be full of wonder and full of mystery, and I and, uh, just want to encourage you with that this morning. Um, maybe some good questions to wrestle with is, just, just this question, is that oftentimes connected to your study of God and your, your work you do here at NC? Is that idea of, I want to learn more about God so that he becomes bigger and more exciting and more mysterious to me in some of these areas that he just will be a mystery? Or do I battle with, um, hey, this is just purely academic and I want to say that I got this locked in? Um, that might be a good question to wrestle with here this week. But can I pray for us? Father, I do uh, really love these uh, friends, and, and I just really pray that you would help us by your spirit to, yes, know as much as we can about you, but also see the the mysteries and the realities in the scriptures that are so clearly beyond us and and to worship you through those mysteries uh, to be like children and to see those and want to lean in more to walk in that humility but that fascination that having a God who is infinite uh, will create in us And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.